Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of Parsha Talk, the best Torah discussion in Dutchess County, New York. I'm your host, Rabbi Barry Chesler, and with me once again is Hope Lavav and Rabbi Ron Scheinberg. So the Parsha this week is um, Akev. Hope you wanted to say a little bit about the name. Uh, I was just struck by the the way the word in the in the the opening pasuk is kind of glossed over, but it kept recurring to me in my head as I was reading through the parsha and the idea of ekev, the uh, the other meaning um, of footsteps, of footprints, and uh, the, a few places in the in the parsha where um, where we read about that, uh, especially. Uh, in in uh, verse 24, we call Makom Asher Tidroch Kafag Lechem Bo Lechem Um Staying away from the politics of the, the boundaries that are in the continuation of that verse, but this idea that um, their footprints, their footsteps are so meaningful. And I want to suggest that the footprints of where they came from also. Um, echo in this uh, in this mention. So there are a number of different themes in the Parsha this week. There's a lot of references to food, both food that people eat, the seven species that the land is known for is mentioned, as well as not eating. Moses is fasting for 40 days, not once but twice. I guess when you have a good thing, you want to repeat yourself. And um, also a number of texts that make their way into various liturgies of the Jewish people in different contexts and we see them here in the Parsha. If we could start with the end of the Parsha, the Bahayam Shemoah passage, which is the second paragraph of the Shema. The general theme is Sachar Va'onesh, reward and punishment. Rob, you wanted to share a thought? Sure. Well, this is one of the more challenging and in much of the Jewish world, even controversial sections of Jewish liturgy, because it is saying if you uh, that uh, uh, if you observe the mitzvot, then you'll have appropriate rain and the agric- you'll have uh, appropriate uh, agricultural production. And if you don't, then the rains will stop up and the land will not yield its produce. Or in other words, there's a one-to-one relationship between your behavior and the quality of the weather and the agriculture. My sense is that most of us would not take that literally, that my sense is that most of us don't think that what we do in the world uh, results immediately in a reward or punishment to us. Sometimes, as soon as people realize this dissonance, it makes this, this passage either difficult or sometimes even impossible to say. And throughout much of the history of Reconstructionist Judaism and some of the history of Reform Judaism, this passage is not recited at all. So when I have thought about this, because I, as a conservative Jew and someone who is liturgically traditional, I do have those same challenges reading this passage because it does not accord with what I know about the weather and, and agriculture. Uh, I, have, uh, I remember being very moved by interpretations of this saying, maybe it's not about mitzvot in general, but maybe it's specifically about those, that narrow band of mitzvot that are about caring for the environment, and that if we neglected those, in fact, the rain would stop up the world, the earth would not yield its produce. So that's one more literal way to take it. Another way to understand it is that it's a passage that is talking in general about 
uh, about the uh, positive things that we do in the world will often have a positive result. Uh, not necessarily in every single instance, but as, uh, as Rabbi Harold Kushner likes to say, it's basically making the point that crime doesn't pay on average. And that there's often the negative consequences for the bad things that we do, and in that sense, uh, that this, this passage uh, is is in fact describing the way the world works. It would be nice if in our world the rain would come when we prayed and did the right thing, and perhaps we were punished in some way when we did not and did the wrong thing, and perhaps the paragraph comes as a reminder that this should be the world that we live in, and we'll leave the actual reward and punishment up to God. The rabbis locate another theme in this paragraph, in addition to Sekharva Onesh. This is their warrant for tefillah. The verse reads, That if you surely listen to the commandments which I command you this day, To love the Lord your God and to worship Him with all your heart, and the rabbis in Masachetani asked the question, my avodah what is this worship of the heart? And they identify it with prayer. We all know, and I had some interesting conversations with the Chanichim this week about the prominent role of sacrifice in the Bible as a mode of worship. There are few of us, even among the young campers, who are looking forward to a rebuilt third temple with a full sacrificial system. Most of us find prayer to be more effective and more desirable, but it is striking that the rabbis found the need to locate prayer in the Torah itself and not just take it, as many of us understand it, as an evolutionary development in our worship as a people. Some thoughts on that. Um, I'm inspired by the the writings of... of, uh, of, of the Rambam, of Maimonides on this, suggesting that, um, like you said, during the time when everybody else was, was engaging in, in worship through sacrifice, of course that's what the Jewish community did. You can't expect the Jewish community and God and the Torah to be so many more steps ahead of everybody else. And um, the, it has an implication in, in at least some of his writings that therefore, if there is to be a, a Beit HaMikdash, I guess it would not involve uh, animal sacrifice. But then there are other of his writings that make that, that issue um, cloudier. I think Rav Cook once put forth the idea that in the third temple there would only be the Mincho offering, the grain sacrifices, which would be a way to satisfy his vegetarian inclinations. <laughs> and be more wholesome because it is striking that the Ola sacrifice, which was offered every day, twice a day, was completely consumed on the altar. And unless we think that God has a physical need for that sacrifice, it's hard to see it as anything, at least in our day, as a a waste of a life, which we should never forget, and also a natural resource as well. Part of prayer concerns how we address God. We, in the bracha formula, it's Baruch Atadonai, praise are you, our Lord. And in the parsha this week, we have the phrase Ha'el Hagadol Bahanorah, which figures prominently as the focus, I think, in the first blessing of the Amidah. We invoke God's name as the God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
And then we refer to him as Ha'el Hagadol Vahanora. So, Rab, you had mentioned something about this identification of God as something more than the power that seems to accrete to the humans who take upon this Kinui of the Great. Yeah, so I'm remembering a, a, an interpretation that's in uh, Sidur Lev Shalem in the name of uh, Rab Sidur. No, of a Sidur called Sidur Iyun Tefillah of uh, Rabbi Mecklenburg that, uh, that, that notes that this phrase, when found in the book of Devarim, Ha'il Hagadol Hagibor Bahanora, God who is great and mighty and, uh, and, and awesome, is followed by not so much descriptions of God's fearsomeness, but rather descriptions of God's concern for the needy. It goes on to say, who is impartial, who doesn't take bribes, takes up the cause of the orphan and the widow, and loves the stranger, and then goes on to say, you should love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Or in other words, God's greatness is manifest by God's concern for the needy. And this is in real contrast to... Well, think about the people in world history who get called the great. Like this is saying Ha'el HaGadol, God the Great. And so, um, you know, Peter the Great, Alexander the Great, Catherine the Great, all the various the greats are probably people known for tremendous power and not necessarily power wielded benevolently, but rather uh, often power wielded violently. And that here... In the context of this phrase, we are focusing on God's compassion. I think it's also interesting the number of times that things circle back to love and circle back to the heart um, as a uh, as a reasoning for for this behavior. That it's uh, it's it, that there's that there is a, a, a deep emotion and investment that's expected. Um, and, um, and, and also at the same time, an acknowledgement that that is, that that is difficult, uh, or that can be difficult, um, in the, in the pasuk that talks about how, um, there might be a thickening around your heart that you need to cut through, um, that this is, is, this isn't meant to be easy, um, but that the, through the hard work and through that intentionality, you can get to that, uh, to that awesomeness. So in the Parsha, and the exact place escapes me at the moment, there's a paragraph, a passage that reminds us of Micha, that it asks, what are we supposed to do? And among the things we're supposed to do, of course, is to observe the commandments, and singled out is the concern for the the poor and the widow. Um, Is that who you're thinking of? It was... Yes, I believe so. Uh, yes. The Atah Yisrael ma'adonai lohecha sha'al me'amecha ki im le'yira et adonai lohecha olachet v'chol drachav lava oto v'lavod et adonai lohecha v'chol lababacha v'chol nashacha And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God demand of you? Which is very similar to the passage in Micha, the Haftarah for Balak, only this, to revere the Lord your God, to walk only in his paths, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, keeping the Lord's commandments. And then it goes on. You know, so just that. 
I just find that to be a kind of a long list. If you say, uh, you know, what does God ask? Only this. Like, do all the mitzvot well, and okay. love God and serve God with all your heart. It's a point well taken, but it's a pasuk or two as opposed to an entire chapter or a book. But it's striking here in this passage, in this parsha, we have the command to love the neighbor. And I hope, as you had mentioned when we were talking before the show, loving the neighbor is, or loving the ger, the stranger, is important because we were gerim in Egypt. And this seems a variation on the commandment to love ourselves because we are the ger and the ger is us. We're not supposed to put a difference between us and another human being regardless of our origin because we're all God's, God's creatures and all created in the image of God. If we could move along then, another passage that figures in the liturgy is the warrant for benching. We praise God as the one, he's provided us with food, we're satisfied, and then we're required to praise him for the land. That makes sense in the context of Sefer Devarim, the people are about to enter the land, the food that they're going to be eating is going to be grown on the land, but this has become part of Birkat Amazon, it's the second blessing. How do we understand the connection between our meals here in the United States and the land of Israel? That's a good question. I was just thinking about how uh, probably for many people who are at camp, they're doing Birkat Hamazon with the Zimun, probably more often when they're at camp than any other than other times in, in, in life, because they're so often in the presence of a minyan when we have, uh, when, when we have meals. And, and I think for many, many campers, Birkat Hamazon is, is a really important part of camp, uh, of, of camp culture. Um, I was sharing with one of the eight dot earlier this week. I was just asking the question, what seems easier to say a bracha before you eat or after you eat? And everybody said, of course, bracha before you eat is easier because, first of all, you're, you're hungry, so you're more appreciative of the gift of food. And second, of course, the brachot are, uh, before we eat are very, very, uh, are much, much shorter. And we actually noted that uh, that uh, stated directly in the Torah is only the commandment for uh, saying brachot after we eat. Now there is a discussion in the Talmud that that uh, does suggest in at least some opinions that saying brachot before one eats also counts as a mito oraita commandment from the Torah. But stated literally we have here, say the bracha after you eat. And one of the explanations is it's because it's harder to say a blessing after you eat. That's why it needs to be commanded, because you're done. You're not hungry anymore. And that is, it's when people are full or satisfied that they are less likely to be appreciative. So I guess when I have read this, and I've seen Haaretz HaTovah Asher Natan Lach, the good land that God has given you, I have uh, not always felt that I needed to uh, say this line with a kavanah of thinking about the land of Israel, but could think of it as, a, as about uh, the land in general, in part because there are other parts of Birkat zone that so strongly highlight the relationship with the land of Israel. What might you say to the camper who says that he or she is not satisfied with the meals served at camp? They're not always a hit. The kitchen staff works very hard to provide meals for close to a thousand people. Um, it's quite a, an undertaking that we're all grateful for, but especially when you're younger, perhaps you're not satisfied with the meal. What would you tell them about the need to bless God for a meal such as that as well? 
it is so interesting. One of my, actually my Kochavim class, um, um, so I just asked the kids, do you have any big Jewish questions that you came to camp with? Uh, and uh, I hope they don't mind my sharing this story on the radio. Um, so there were actually three kids who... I assume they won't be listening. They might, you know. Uh, three kids, hands shot up, and I, and I asked the, the first one, and uh, she said, I don't know if it's an appropriate question. And then the other two said, oh, we don't know if ours is an appropriate question either. So then we just went on to something else. And then over the course of the conversation, somebody asked the question, how do we know that God is real? And then the first girl said, actually, that was my question from the beginning. And then one of the boys said, actually, that was also my question from the beginning. And so it's one of the things we'll be talking about uh, today. And it occurs to me that very often when people ask me that kind of question, about like, what is the fundamental religious impulse, I often think about food. I often think about one of the easiest ways to connect to the, uh, the miracles of the world, or at least how I understand God as, as real, has to do with these gifts that I feel like I am always receiving, with food being such a, one such tangible example. And I think camp is an excellent place to explore the spirituality of food. We have mitbachon, we have farm to table, we have so many ways in which we, as a large Jewish community, uh, uh, focus on on uh, on food. And so my the answers that I will give and our discussion will certainly have something to do with 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 the gift of food and how we express gratitude for the gift of food. Yeah, <clears throat> I think also the idea of being satisfied after you eat uh, doesn't necessarily have to correlate to, wow, that was the most delicious thing I ever ate, but understanding that your body needs sustenance, your body needs some sort of nutrition, and I think that um, in keeping with what how you were describing, Barry, the... the um, the hard work of the kitchen staff and really trying to have balanced meals and food for many different kinds of eaters that it would be it, it is always very appropriate to uh, to express gratitude um, whether or not it's your the, the most delicious meal to you it's still something that um, that satisfies the needs of your body and uh, and sustains you and uh, and certainly um, in a world where uh, not everyone has that opportunity uh, it is our uh, responsibility to uh, to help kids understand um, how lucky they are so the sustenance and the nutrition that you spoke of for our ancestors was the mana that came from heaven that nourished our people for 40 years. And in the Parsha, God explains that he gave the mana in part to make a point. So part of the verse is how God subjected us to the hardship of hunger and then gave us mana to eat, which we did not know and our ancestors had not known. Laman lo al that in order to teach you that man, a person, does not live on bread alone, but that man may live on anything that the Lord decrees. This is a line that has come into the English language, probably through the King James Bible, the most common translation around in, in the, the most common English translation, of course. How do we understand that line today, that man, a person, doesn't live by bread alone, but on what God provides for us? I think about it in the context of, uh, 
the, uh, the psychologist Abraham Maslow's uh, the hierarchy of needs, this famous psychological teaching from mid 20th century that says that uh, I can't remember what they are exactly, but <laughs> the last one fulfill- is self-actualization. Right, that's right, but you don't get nobody even thinks about self-actualization unless they have taken care of their more basic needs for food and shelter and clothing and general protection and security, and only then do you start thinking about these. These, these higher level things about like, like self-actualization. We are so fortunate living as a, uh, a, a Jewish, those of us in Jewish community in the United States or other parts of the, of, of the developed world and parts of the, the wealthier part of the world where we really can focus on, on self-actualization. So that's one of the things that I think of uh, uh, in the context of that verse. Um, that uh, that what is being said here is uh, nutrition is not the only thing that you need to survive. But once those needs are met, you have these other needs that God also, uh, uh, God willing, provides. Also, I think um, it, it could be uh, helping us. I think we spend a lot of time being focused on what our next meal is and planning for what our next meal is and shopping and preparing and cooking and all of that and and here it's turning that that idea of sustenance away from just um being food and 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 having us recognize that there are like rob said there are other things that um that feed us um in uh in in different ways I actually was struck by the the pasuk before this one um, that uh, that again focusing on on memory where Moshe is pointing the people to remember the 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 long way that uh, that that they traveled through the wilderness and this idea here lemaan anotcha le nasotcha le dat et asher belevavcha that God would test you would test the people by hardships to to see what was in their heart to see if they could pass that test and this idea of god as a as a tester um always fascinates me but to see what's really in your heart who are you what are you made of and um and 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 can you are you the the people who will be considered worthy to enter the land. So perhaps the question is whether this testing has a negative connotation. For many of us in the school environment, very few people afford to test. Or perhaps a positive element as well, because God is refining the people. He is testing them in the sense of getting rid of the impurities, shall we say, that are holding them back from their self-actualization in those pre-Maslow days. So (laughs) what is... One of the things that struck me when I was looking at the Parsha in preparation today is how the Egyptian experience is contrasted with the land of Israel. And what struck me is the idea that in Israel, the water is going to be from rain and the underground wells and rivers. Whereas in Egypt, it was hard work to bring the water of the Nile to the fields. And I had never really thought about that. Most of us, I think, think of slavery as bringing bricks to build um, anachronistically, of course, the pyramids. <laughs> but the idea that the real work in Egypt was getting the water to your fields so you could grow your crops 
And in Eretz Yisrael, we don't have to worry about that. Of course, as the Vahayam Shemoa paragraph reminds us, that dependence on rain also can be offset by the droughts that inevitably come when the rain doesn't fall, and then you wish you had some water you could bring from someplace to your fields. And in Eretz Israel, at least in the pre-modern state, did not have those opportunities. But it was a, a, another view of slavery. Our ancestors, as you mentioned, Hope, are being tested. They're being called into question. And Moses spends a fair amount of time in this parsha talking about the greatest sin of his generation, which was the golden calf. Here, Aaron is punished. Um, he will die before entering the land of Egypt. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Sefer Bar, the lack of entrance into the land is attributed to the scene at the rock. Here, Aaron is paying the price for the golden calf. Last week, Moses paid the price for the scouts. How might we understand the shift in emphasis from what accounts for Moses and Aaron not entering the land in terms of the narrative of the Torah. In the last year of Moses' life, the last few months, last few days, he takes this long look back at the people. He's seeing things, I assume, that he did not see before. We all have the experience of being caught up in our daily activity and not having a chance for the long perspective, as we were talking earlier, Hope. How might we understand Moses at this point in changing the story, as it were, in order to provide an important lesson for this generation going into the land? I think you pointed out, I can't remember which of you had pointed out something that I had not uh, uh, thought of before, which is that in the narrative parts of the Torah, we read that Moses and Aaron get punished for a specific sin that they did. And that in Moses' retelling, Aaron is really punished for something that was really the fault of the people, and Moses is also punished for something which is really the fault of the people. So not surprisingly, that they would uh, want to suggest, uh, considering Moses and Aaron, neither of them signed up for this leadership role. They both were essentially called into service. It's bad enough to be called into service to self-sacrificially say, rather than pursuing whatever was my plan for my life, I'm going to pursue what was God's plan for my life. And then to feel like, well, I made this mistake and now I'm being held accountable uh, for in, improperly fulfilling a role I didn't even sign up for. It's not surprising to me. I think it's very human that Moses will do a kind of a reread of this and feel that actually the fault really lies with the people. Uh, and interestingly, it stays, it stays in the Torah. I don't know if it stays in the Torah and then we're supposed to conclude from that that Moses is human like everybody else, or maybe it stays in the Torah and we're supposed to conclude from that that God and Jewish tradition basically validate Moses' reading because they, they let Moses' reading stand here alongside the other reading. Hmm. It, 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 we can tie it back also to last week's Parsha of God instructing Moshe to look north, look south, look west, and look east, and have this rereading, this looking back as part of his looking east, um, the, the looking back from where he came and at what happened and, uh, and seeing things in a, in a, slightly, different, in a slightly different way.
So one of the joys of reading Sefer Devarim is that it makes many references to events that have come before, and we have the opportunity to compare the summation in Devarim with how the events unfolded in the earlier books of the Torah. As we move to the conclusion of our program, I thought it would be nice to quote the verse that provides the, um, the title for one of our teachers, Rabbi Neil Gilman's book on Jewish theology, Sacred Fragments. The verse is, V'yachtov al-aluchot et ha-devarim, asher hayu al-aluchot ha-rishonim, asher shibarta v'samtam baron. Moses is told, I will inscribe on the tablets the commandments that were on the first tablets that you smashed, or I guess God is speaking here, and you shall, and you shall deposit them in the ark. As Rabbi Gilman notes in quoting the Midrash, for the rabbis, what ended up in the ark was both the broken tablets, what Rabbi Gilman called the sacred fragments, as well as the complete luchot, the ones that were whole. And this was the image that was supposed to sustain Israel, that we have something that's complete, we might even say perfect, the luchot, as well as something broken. And that is so true of all of our lives. We go through moments, hopefully, of great joy and great meaning. And we've all experienced broken moments as well. The Parsha, as they all are inevitably, is especially rich. We can say that every week. There is more we might have talked about. But this brings us to a conclusion of another edition of Parsha Talk for Hope and Rob. I'd like to say to all listening in the environs of Camp Ramah, 102.3 FM, or on the web at www.kolramah.org. Shabbat Shalom.